Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, all. You've reached the official end of season one of the Your Body, Your Brand podcast, and you might have to wait a little while for season two. But that doesn't mean that the podcast has to end here. Before we get into the epilogue, I wanted to remind you that you can become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash bodybrandpod. Becoming a patron of the podcast gives you access to all of the interviews that I conducted in order to create this podcast. That's interviews about eating disorder recovery, about capitalism, about feminism, about religion, about, well, I mean, you'll have to listen to find out. These interviews are insightful, inspiring, and I think pretty important. So if you'd like to listen to the full interviews with some of your favorite guests, you can become a patron and get access to them. I'll be releasing them up until I run out of audio, so that gives you months and months of content beyond this podcast. You'll also get access to all of the interviews that I've already released, which gives you 16 weeks of podcast guests to listen to. Additionally, by becoming a patron, you'll actually have access not just to me, but to one another. Did you know that Patreon allows you to interact with other fans of the pod? Well, the cool thing about this and the reason why I think it's important is because while I'm skeptical of internet communities, I do think that the only way that we move forward, the only way that we get out of this system is by leaning on one another and interacting with one another in the sense that we can actually work towards answers. So the reason that I thought it's important to bring this up is because one of the current patrons of the podcast, Linda Tucker, asked a really insightful question on Patreon. And I would love for you to be able to go in and either interact, answer, brainstorm, think of solutions in response to this question. I'm going to paraphrase and cut it down a little because it's long. But if you go to patreon.com slash bodybrandpod and log in, you'll be able to answer the question yourself. So here's the question. Linda says, I found that episode 11, accountability, really touched on the internal struggle that I've grappled with since I started coaching a few years ago. The line, and she's paraphrasing, was like peering into my therapy and supervision sessions. I have opted out and I want others who have more money to pay for that choice. Of course, that's not why I started coaching. I had actually opted out well before I went into coaching, but I'm forever struggling to find a way to be compensated for my training, education, supervision, and business costs, while also being accessible to everyone who may seek out support, especially the ones most harmed by our current systems. I've thrown around the idea of operating like a nonprofit, and essentially that's what I'm doing now, albeit unintentionally, but I don't see many people, especially coaches, modeling this choice. Does anyone have any ideas? I know we operate in a capitalistic system and the mention of Tina or there is no alternative really hits home, but I wonder how true is that? As someone who wants to contribute to change and recovery without doing harm, I find my whole idea of solo entrepreneurship to be in constant odds with my desire to use my unearned advantages to fight for equity and body liberation. Any thoughts? Well, if you've got thoughts, please go to patreon.com slash bodybrandpod and let Linda know. I really want to encourage you to be thinking about this, be talking about this, um, have these conversations with your coaching groups, share the podcast with them. And speaking of which, if becoming a patron really isn't in your bank account right now, which I totally understand as a graduate student, there are other ways to support the podcast. Word of mouth, leaving a review, subscribing, sharing on your social media platform of choice. Each of these things helps get the word out. This is 
a hard thing to communicate to people where the value is in this podcast, but I know from the responses that you guys have given me that there is value to you. So if you find the podcast valuable and you want to see a season two or compensate me for some of the work done on season one, please feel free to become a patron or just help me spread the word. All of that said, I just want to thank you for listening. Thank you for being open to new ideas, for challenging preconceived notions, and for listening, for giving up some of your time to let me share a little bit of the thoughts that have been rolling around in my head. With that, let's get into the epilogue. We still don't get paid what I believe we're worth. I had secretly been wanting to try health coaching. Women have been dropping out. Your body is the next frontier of liberation. You have to monetize. We buy into this idea that anyone can do this. Your body becomes proof. Whether or not we're trying to sell a service or a product, all women are brands. Now I'm a health coach. My name is Kyla Tova, and this is Your Body, Your Brand. Epilogue. We are now entering the fourth week of yoga training and my initial thoughts are that it is very intense. I am recording this audio journal a week after probably one of the worst days of yoga training where I was contemplating whether or not I wanted to just leave. I saw it all around in my classmates is that there was just fear and shame and this look on our faces trying to understand why we couldn't get it. Although season one concluded a few weeks ago, I couldn't leave you all without revisiting some of the women who dropped out. You just heard a snippet of an audio diary recorded by Jennifer Seminathan, the woman whom we met in the prologue. If you recall, Jennifer had left a tech job to travel and become a writer, and along the way, she found herself drawn to yoga teacher training. I caught up with her a few days after she recorded her final audio diary and asked her her final thoughts on yoga teacher training. So we officially finished and graduated three days ago. So I think the last time we talked, it was the day that I was starting training, which, like you said, it was a few months ago. And now that I'm done oh i'm feeling a lot of things so first i'm feeling relieved Uh, i didn't realize it was going to be as much work as it was we are required to take 200 hours of training which essentially means we have to also we're also required to take classes as well so there's days when i was doubling up on classes just to ensure that I was meeting those requirements and graduating on time. And in addition to taking classes, we have to write and journal about each class to give us a better understanding of how we'd want our class to run, like things we didn't like, things that we did like. So that was, that was actually a very um, eye-opening experience. In addition to that, we had to, we had to take outside classes that we can compare our program versus like how someone teaches at another yoga studio and having that contrast is very helpful um and it's gosh and then we we taught for the first time to a community last week which was the most nerve-wracking experience 
and we were all just, yeah, we're all just little girls, essentially just so nervous. We never taught to anyone besides ourselves um, and our little group. And part of the graduation requirements is that, okay, uh, we're going to open up this class and you guys are all going to take turns teaching. And keep in mind, we don't get our, our section. We don't know our section until the night before. So the only prep work we have is hours before class and then a few hours before we go to sleep, essentially. Uh, but I will tell you that after all this, I am so glad I met the people that I met. I know we're going to be friends for life. And for that, I'm very grateful. But I think uh, you know, the, the question is, do I still want to teach after all this, after going through all this? And the answer is no. Even though many of the coaches whom you met throughout the podcast have continued with wellness entrepreneurship in some capacity, from personal training and yoga teaching to health coaching and body image work, there have been some who have dropped back into the workforce. I interviewed two of those wellness entrepreneurs about a year and a half after our first interviews to try to understand why they decided it was time to give up on their passion projects and go back to their previous jobs. You met Sarah Vance early in the podcast. Sarah was an ICU nurse who was also trying to build a wellness business on the side so that she could live on her own terms. Although she started out as a personal trainer and a bodybuilder, she eventually transitioned to body image coaching so she could help women stop dieting and get on with their lives. And then one day, her business was just gone. Her professional accounts were suddenly personal accounts. Her website was missing. And I wanted to know what changed for her, since it seemed like she had been going through a period of growth with her business, her podcast, and her writing. All right. So as far as me, you know, um, the decision that I made to quit my business and totally, you know, let that part of my life go, um, it was really a reflection of living within my values and my belief system. I mean, the message that I have had this entire time that I was um, within my business and coaching individuals was how do we become more aligned with who we are and ultimately how do we just live our damn lives? I've said that a million and 10 times. Um, it's been a prominent theme in my writing and my speaking and my coaching is live your damn life. Um, and when I really took a step back and was looking at my own life, I had a big freaking like moment of realizing that I was not practicing what I wholeheartedly believed in. Um, I was living my life, but at the same time, like my business was, um, overtaking my life. I was putting a lot of energy, um, emotionally, mentally, physically into my business. And when I looked at, you know, the end of the year came and I was looking at, um, you know, how I did and everything. And I had, I had progressed, you know, the year before I did better financially, you know, yada, yada, but the amount of money 
money that I made financially compared to the amount of labor I was putting in was ridiculous. Um, it just was not adding up and it just wasn't worth it to me because it was adding another stressor to my life. Um, and it was no longer fulfilling me. I mean, I love coaching clients. Like if I could, and I've said this, like if I could just magically have clients appear, coach them and not have to worry about marketing or writing or podcasting or, you know, developing programs or whatever, I, I would do it. Of course I would do it, you know, and people, if people would be willing to pay you, um, because that's the other thing in the specific work that I did. And I think this is kind of with women in general, um, and more so if they are a marginalized woman, you know, um, you know, a person of color, LGBTQ, you know, something like that. Um, a fat woman. I think that those, you know, intersections obviously play a role. So I want to recognize my privilege with that. But being a woman, we still don't get paid what we, um, I believe, we're worth. And I think that is very prominent. And even the work that I see um, that I was doing, and the work that I see within that that um, realm of body image work, if you will, uh, body acceptance, whatever, whatever kind of genre you want to call it. Um, people are constantly asking for unpaid labor and it's just absurd that, you know, we have to put that out almost. It's an expectation for women to, um, at least in my experience and what I've seen in my life, uh, it's an expectation almost that you have to give out so much in order for somebody to even give a little bit for you and actually pay you. Um, and when I started this year, you know, I initially was like, I'm going to try, I'm going to continue. I was writing a book. I was developing a program. Like I was like, going to move forward with my business. And one of my themes was I'm going to get fucking paid. Um, and at the end of the day, like that was it. Like I was like, I'm not doing any more free labor. Like I stopped being, you know, active in my, uh, Facebook group that I had. I switched everything to Patreon. My blog posts become paid. Like I, I was like, I'm going to get paid because we have bills. Like all of us have bills to pay. And I think I spoke about this the first time that we, um, you know, chatted about my business is like, I don't have somebody that is helping me pay for my bills. Like I'm a single female, um, in a, in a city that's pretty expensive to live in. Um, so I got, it's all on me. You know what I mean? Like I needed to be able to financially support myself. Um, and so when I really looked at that, those two factors of like, am I actually living my life? Am I actually able to do the things that really fulfill me? Like, yeah, coaching fulfilled me, but it's also super fulfilling for me to just go and have fun. Like I do live in a beautiful city. I would much rather go out and like go to some breweries with some friends and just chill or sleep and do nothing or like spend some time in the mountains with my dog. Like there's a lot of other stuff, uh, travel that I would much rather do, um, than spending, you know, time locked up in my house, in my, you know, um, office on a beautiful day. Like it's just wasn't working for my life anymore. It didn't allow for a spontaneity anymore, which is something that I value as well. Um, because if you have clients, you know, here and there throughout the day or whatever, it's like, you can't go and like go out in the mountains, you know, an hour away and be hiking and then come back. You know, it just doesn't, it wasn't reflecting what I need right now in my life and what's going to provide me with most fulfillment. And it was going against the message that I truly believed in. And on top of that, like I, I needed to make some money. And, um, I also just wanted to be able to clock out like straight up. I just wanted to be able to clock in, do my shit and clock out, which is why, you know, I decided to, uh, continue with my nursing career, which I never quit in the first place. Unlike Jennifer, Sarah never quit her job. Even though her public persona made it look like health coaching was her only gig, it just wasn't a good risk to go all in at the time. And she was lucky she stayed. 
Sarah, like me, got started with body image coaching around the time when it was still a relatively small niche. But over time, and it was a short period of time, it just grew and got crowded, and suddenly everyone was a body image coach. And yet, despite the fact that there seemed to be a new coach every day, no one seemed to actually be paying for the coaching. Well, I think it's interesting that in if we're specifically talking about body image, which really is, you know, a discussion about self-worth and the value of an individual, um, which it just really blows my mind that if that really is the base of that work, like seeing individuals value, especially when it comes to anybody who resides in a marginalized body, so women, uh, people that identify as women, um, you know, I just, it doesn't, it, it becomes a very big clash with like what's actually occurring versus what the actual quote unquote movement uh, or belief system is about. Because if we really want to advocate and say, yeah, you know, I'm valuable and the rest of these individuals are valuable, then, but people aren't living that. Like they're, they're not living that. Like the either, not only the coaches, but also the people that are um, ingesting all of this stuff that are asking for it and, and not wanting to pay, it, it just doesn't. It's a very like um, it, it causes a lot of friction when you sit down and critically think about that message and what's actually occurring um, is that like if that's what we want to say, if we want to know our own value and we truly want to create a shift where it's like everybody has value, blah, 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 then like we need to be we need we need to live up to that. Like we need to walk that talk. We can't just talk it and then be like, I'm not going to pay anybody. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, I, and it it stinks because, you know, we're when you're in a helping profession, even if that profession is currently being unpaid, um, you know, when you're somebody who wants to help, you should want to help without any strings attached. Right. Like there's a there's a moral, ethical thing that happens. And so and I, I mean, I can speak from my own experience, at least, you know, like when somebody would send me like a four page email about their eating disorder and ask for help, I'm not going to say I can't give you any advice here's my program or at least I didn't but that's why I didn't make any money um you know I just answered and I would spend hours a day answering emails from people because I I didn't want to see people hurt but on the flip side what happens is then people like you and I then burn out and you know like I literally lost like four years of my life to you know just sitting in a coffee shop on a Saturday while working a full-time job Monday to Friday, you know, trying to frantically write blog posts, answer emails, schedule social media when I could have, you know, been out living and living the principles that I wanted to help the people who were looking for help from me. We touched on this a lot during the podcast, the ways in which equating our bodies with value becomes a trap, especially when we're asking for monetary compensation for making our bodies into consumable brands. Jennifer noticed how much energy it took to be on just for the duration of the class, and it turned her off from wanting to pursue that onness as a career. This program gave me such a deep dive into what it would be like being a yoga instructor and I have so much more respect for people in the fitness field and people who do this for a living because there is a certain level of energy that you need to bring like you need to bring it all the time and I mean even days when you're feeling tired even days when you're not feeling your best like that doesn't matter like you need to be 
on top of your game, especially if you are commanding a classroom, or that will trickle down to your students. And that was very evident when I took classes and I was like, okay, obviously the teacher is not in the best mood or is not bringing their A game. And that shows, right? You see people, you see instructors who genuinely love what they do and would do it for free. Like for that matter, like they genuinely love what they do. And you see instructors who are just kind of going with the motions and not really putting their personality into it. And it becomes almost robotic. Um, And just really thinking about my process and my journey through this. And I look at my friends that I've made and I have friends that are very, that want to be a teacher after this. They're like, yes, we're going to continue with extension. We're going to continue to audition. We're going to continue with this process and, and do what needs to be done. For me, it was more of this journey was, okay, do I want to teach? And it's going to be more of a self-discovery process. And at the end, Kyla, I'm, I don't. For many of us, this self-discovery process often starts in the yoga classroom or at the gym, or in the spin stadium, or, you know, insert your workout modality here. For many women, the focus on exercise or nutrition just feels like an out. And as we've discussed, once you've made the first investment, and it's usually a large one, it's a lot harder to disentangle yourself from making further investments or trying to stick a bad investment out. Jennifer luckily managed to distinguish for herself, however, that this was not a long-term investment, at least not in the way she'd initially imagined. At, at the end, we, what was it, our second to last day of class, uh, okay, you know, show of hands, who wants to continue with extensions? And just so you and everyone else knows, um, the journey doesn't end here, right? The journey only ends here for people who don't want to continue. So extensions is an extended program in which they deep dive into how to teach at their specific studio. So right now, we're all certified. We can go and teach anywhere. But extensions means if you want to teach at this particular studio and the studios that are associated with this company uh, nationwide, you have to go through extensions. They're going to teach you the details of the music, of turning lights, of, you know, really give you concrete feedback on how you can improve as an instructor. Only four people from her class of 16 would be continuing through extensions, but all 16 were now licensed to teach. It's not that Jennifer was done with yoga. Quite the contrary. She found something in being a student that fed her, but teaching was not the path that she felt she would follow. I believe that... How do I say this? I know I can do it. Like being there, memorizing the sequence, learning the cues... uh, I know I can do it, but what I felt after teaching was just pure exhaustion. And it wasn't, it, it wasn't that I, I did terribly or anything. I think we all did very well. It's just some people were very energized after and they felt invigorated. But for me, I was thinking, Ugh, I, I don't want to continue teaching this because it just wasn't fun for me, quite frankly. What's fun for me is going into class and being told what to do. And, and that's plain and simple. 
Like, I love yoga because I love going in there and being a student of yoga. And there's other areas of my life where I'm like, okay, I can take the lead on this. And I feel comfortable taking the lead on this. And I feel empowered. Um, But through the yoga teaching process, that wasn't something that I felt empowered doing. What I will say, though, it's opened my eyes to the industry as a whole. So what I would like to do is own a yoga studio. And I've communicated this with my, my group, my community, and my coaches. I see the opportunity in the business here, which is like there are so many people trying to be yoga instructors. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize everyone here, including all the other studios, are holding teacher training, which is incredible. We all have similar interests. Um, But yeah, it, it just wasn't fun for me. And I think that there is a level of, you know, white knuckling it and getting through the difficulties of pursuing your interest. But there is a level of you got to be interested in it, too. And, yeah, and that just wasn't for me. And I know my boyfriend saw it. I was really hoping this would open up a gate or I would come out on the other end and just think, huh, this is what I'm meant to do with my life. But it was more, wow, I'd love to open up a yoga studio and hire incredible talent because, like I mentioned, they put in a lot, yoga instructors put in a lot of work and people in the fitness industry in general, if you genuinely love what you do, uh, just they care about their students, the amount of time they spend in rehearsing and rehearsing and just the little details that go into creating a class are so essential. So I, I came out of it thinking I would love to own, but I would not like, I wouldn't like to teach. I found this very interesting, Jennifer's realization that the yoga market was so saturated. You know, while doing research for this podcast, I saw a figure from a report that the Yoga Alliance put out in 2016, which stated that there are two people who want to become yoga teachers for every one person who is already teaching. If we look at Jennifer's revelation from a capitalist perspective, it seems to make business sense to want to start a yoga studio and create opportunity for those teachers who wouldn't otherwise have a studio at which to teach. But on the other hand, especially given all the work we've done over the past 12 episodes, we have to ask, does the world really need more yoga teachers or body image coaches or personal trainers? Does this market saturation really do anything for the people whom we're purporting to help? Sarah Vance asked herself the same question. And another thing that I talked about in the in our previous discussion is about like this Bopo bubble. I think I mentioned that where it's like people come and they stay. And it's like my goal as a coach was to get you through all of this shit and like even away from body, quote unquote, body positivity. And I know that may cause a little friction with individuals that are listening to this that are in the movement, but to not be so trapped, like instead of like being trapped in diet culture to then be trapped into body positivity, not in the sense of not being um, involved with the liberation of all bodies, but like being so incredibly focused on that, where it does prohibit you from living your life. And one thing that, you know, I find problematic is that we're not, 
we're not advocating for individuals to use their own resourcefulness. We're not like if we, if somebody comes to us in our email and we're just going to be continuing a, they're asking us for free labor, but B we're also disservicing those individuals, um, by giving them free advice or free whatever, because we're not allowing them to be tap into their own resourcefulness, which ultimately that's what they need to be able to move forward out of all of this stuff to be able to live their life is they need to be able to say, Hey, I'm resourceful. I can, you know, look this up on the internet. There are, there's so much stuff now with body image and body positivity and self-worth. And there's, there's literally, it's so saturated that you can just Google stuff. So it's like, we have to be able to hold um, people accountable for their own healing as well, because, um, you know, it, it goes I, I oftentimes, um, and, and this isn't saying for an individual that has a diagnosed eating disorder, because that individual is very different from the individuals that I'm talking about and I worked with. Um, but, but, you know, putting that back on an individual to say, Hey, you know what? You're resourceful. You need to, you know, do this for yourself. Um, because I think that ultimately that discussion is what's going to help those individuals the most. Even though Sarah's work was about getting people out of coaching, she needed to decide if she would continue as a health coach in a market where anyone could hang up a digital shingle and begin dispensing their personal stories as advice. You have to understand that like helping an individual is different than coaching an individual. And I think that there, because it's not a regulated field coaching, um, anybody can call themselves a coach, but there's a difference between a coach that has spent money, time, and energy onto truly understanding the concepts of how do you actually coach somebody versus an individual who's actually just giving advice. There is a significant difference in how you're going to be able to help people because, um, I think that, you know, it speaks worlds a difference if an individual has gotten professionally trained, um, to, know how to coach an individual versus somebody is just saying, well, this is my personal experience. This is what worked with me because that's, that's not helpful to people. It is for a little bit, but like everybody's different. And that's actually what's not going to help a person, um, through the longevity of this process. So I, there's a lot of stuff that's involved with that entire thing. Um, but I think that it's a disservice to both individuals to just give out free labor because we're not putting, um, we're not holding those individuals accountable for their own healing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think in a way we've become kind of because we, we've become so used to Googling everything like we need advice. I need help. I can't tie my shoelaces without looking up the right way to look up, a you know, or the right way to tie a shoelace, if you will. You know, I mean, like I find myself relying on Google for things that I should just be able to figure out myself. Right. Um, and so we've kind of come to a place where we're, we're training people to need coaching, which is really a. Um, more than anything, it's a, a a capitalist thing than it is an actual helping thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it totally, um, you know, disintegrates even further our um, ability to have self-trust, um, which, you know, coming from the realm of diet culture and body image, these sectors of individuals have had their self-trust completely obliterated. That's one of the biggest things that they have to work through is learning how to trust their own decisions, trust their own, whatever it may be, intuition, if that's what you want to call it, um, but trust themselves. And so when we, you know, kind of, um, cater to these individuals in that way. We're not allowing that person to develop that vital necessary component of self-trust, which is like one of the core components of, um, self-worth is, is self-trust. Um, so if you don't have that and you're not teaching or even facilitating somebody to rely and, and rebuild that for themselves, then that's not going to be helpful in the long term either. 
For Sarah, the desire to help, to teach, to guide was there, but she had to ask if this was worth the hustle. My goal with coaching, you know, yes, it was to help individuals go through this, you know, process because I know how detrimental it was to my life when I was in diet culture, but also how healing and how life changing it was for me to um, get out of diet culture. And so I had a real burning passion for that. And once I got even further into it, um, I still do like that passion will always be existent. Like even though I have left coaching, I'm not as present online, like all that shit, like this is a real belief system and I see how detrimental and how needed it is for individuals to speak out against a lot of social justice stuff, not even about fat phobia and diet culture, but racism, all this stuff. That's, that's a part of my individual beliefs and values. Um, so that doesn't change, but the reason, another reason, you know, yes, I wanted to help people and yes, I wanted to make money, uh, of course, but I have always been the type of person where it's like, what is going to allow me to work the least amount of time make the most amount of money so I can go and live the most out of my life. I mean, in all reality, like that's like, I want to be able to work to live and not live to work like hands down. Um, so I had this illusion in my head that, you know, you grind for three years in your business and it's really rough and you dedicate yourself. And then like eventually, you know, the clouds part and there's, you know, singing and rainbows and like, you're just going to be able to passively make money, right? Like we hear that all the time, passively make money. And it's just going to like, everything's going to be easy. Um, it may be for some people, but like, that was not the case for me. Um, like I said earlier, I was working my ass off and super tired. Um, and not making nearly as much as what I could by literally picking up another day at the hospital. Um, so, um, so that was, you know, what my, my goal for coaching was to be able to make money, live my life, uh, on my own terms, not work for quote unquote, you know, the man, um, and, you know, have more freedom, um, which was a complete facade. That's not the reality that I had. I feel like I was still working for the man because I'm, I, we're all functioning under capitalism, right? Like <laughs> we're, we're still, we're still working for the man. I just was working way harder when I had my business because now, uh, I can, uh, work three twelves clock in and clock out. I get paid, you know, um, I think we all could get paid more, but I get paid, you know, a decent amount of money and, uh, I can turn my brain off and I have benefits. I have, you know, uh, stability and I don't have to worry as much. And I, and I'm, I'm good at what I do. I enjoy what I do. Um, it may not be like this, you know, diehard burning soul passion, but it is, you know, it's a, it's something that I enjoy and it definitely is a passion of mine, um, that, you know, gets me excited again now that I've gone into a different role into the nursing career. I accepted a leadership position in, um, it's basically a nursing supervisor, uh, position for my unit. So, um, you know, everybody's kind of familiar with having a charge nurse. So not only am I the designated charge, but I also have individual, uh, people underneath me, direct report people underneath me. And I also have other responsibilities as far as, uh, taking care of the unit, um, and being, you know, kind of the middle person between, um, higher leadership and the bedside. Um, so that position is, um, I'm really excited about it because it's something that is just speaks to, it was just a fit. It really was. It just was a natural progression to where I already was in my life, um, to be able to 
easily transition into this other position that, um, I think that I'm going to do great at. And obviously my, um, you know, peers and everybody thought so as well. Most of them at least (laughs) thought so as well, which is why I actually have the position. So, um, you know, with the good thing with nursing is that, you can do just about anything. Um, you could travel and make a shit ton of money. Uh, you you could be at the bedside the rest of your life. You could get into higher leadership as far as like, you know, higher up with being a CNO or whatever. You could go back to school and be an educator. Like there's literally so much that you could do, um, that it's, it's just a really great field in all honesty. But for me personally, I didn't expect that I would ever get into a quote unquote leadership position. It just wasn't anything that I really, um, thought I wanted to do. I knew I was always kind of interested in teaching individuals, um, in that sense. But now that this position has come into place, I definitely could see myself, you know, moving through with this position, um, even further or even going into higher leadership eventually. But I'm not sure if that's something I want to do yet or not. The second woman whom I interviewed about a year and a half after our first conversation is Carrie Angolia, the creative director whom we met at various points throughout the podcast, and, and she also felt exhaustion with the corporate world. She left her corporate job to build Yoga for the Revolution and Tigers and Tweets, various businesses that were centered in the body. And while working in the corporate world made her want to go home and lie down forever, the hustle of building Yoga for the Revolution was its own kind of energy vampire. And while Carrie hasn't returned to the corporate world writ large, instead of focusing on yoga, Carrie has re-engaged with her advertising roots through freelance. Yeah, it's interesting to think back a year and a half ago because I feel like that first initial push out of the corporate world was still so raw to me at that time. And now that I look back, it feels, I feel I'm obviously the same person, but it feels like a lifetime ago that I would have enjoyed doing the things I did every day. And, and obviously towards the end, I did not enjoy it, which is part of the reason why I left. I am still freelance um, and making my way through that gauntlet is different. It's a different kind of hustle than it is in a a nine to five or a 10 to six or a 10 to eight or whatever your hours might be. Um, it's, it's a little bit more, I don't know. I want to say it's a roller coaster, but it's one that, um, I have the option to drive if I remember to take the wheel. And so there's, there's different kinds of effort involved and I'm not like a naturally hustle person. I'm not, I I kind of believe that that hustle is glorified in a way, but on the other hand, it's also really necessary if you'd like to work for a living. So, (laughs) you know, you can't really like coast your way through freelance life. You have to be in touch with people all the time. And as someone who needs recovery time is naturally introverted, I can give out a certain amount of energy and then I need recuperation time. And I'm, I've spent the last year figuring out, well, how do you, how do I do that? Being who I am, knowing that I was exhausted going into work every single day and dealing with those politics and had no recovery time. Now, how do I balance my 
self time, my recuperation time, knowing that every minute I'm not working, I'm not getting paid, which puts a little bit of a different spin on it. For Carrie, freelance was a better fit, even though it came with precarity, because it meant escaping the structural issues that plagued her time in the corporate world. Some positive things that have come out of it are I have met great people, um, specifically a few, a few women that I've really connected with in terms of how we view the agency model as kind of an unhealthy beast and that when we work together, whether we work together on projects outside of an agency or whether we freelance together as a team at an agency, we are so, so focused on transparent communication, compassionate conversations, support. It's a completely different way of working. It may be possible to work that way in a full-time corporate environment, although I have not personally experienced that. I imagine that it would have to be a very, I don't know, yin-focused kind of kind of place. I, I always get a little hung up. I don't want to go too far into saying it has to be female, but there is that energy of um, accountable compassion that I've really been exploring lately, especially politically and, and with what's going on in the world. And, and I think that the only way to move any relationship forward, whether it's personal or professional, has to be with compassionate accountability. That's the only way to get anything done. So being able to work with, you know, if it's one person or a group of five people who all come to the table with certain a priori understandings, right? They might be, I don't have a separate agenda. <laughs> I'm not trying to compete with you. We all agree that this is our goal. Um, and those seem super duper simple. And I think they're things that I thought were happening in the corporate world and then was constantly disappointed when they were not happening. And not just from other people, from myself as well. I would go into a project thinking that I wanted the best for everyone and then be in the middle of it and realize, no, this is all ego, this is personal, this is, you know, and get really wrapped up in that part of it. So to be able to have people around you that support a more compassion, excuse me, a compassion-driven mission to get the work done. The work doesn't have to all be about saving puppies or, or doing the good right thing, even if it's about something you, you don't necessarily care about. It can be about shave gel, um, but if you're working with a group of people who are coming together with that alignment in terms of the goals, then, you know, then it can be a great working experience. While Carrie has moved towards a more collective model of work, Sarah has had to grapple with some of the growing pains that come along with taking on a leadership position. Yeah, so I still, the position that I'm in now, which is why I like it so much, is because I still enjoy being a bedside nurse. Like, I still enjoy interacting with the patients um, and interacting with my team if I'm in charge and facilitating that and working with the doctors. Like, I still really enjoy that. I would absolutely hate to sit in meetings like eight hours a day. Like, no thanks. I think my brain would probably fall asleep and I would not be engaged whatsoever. Um, so, it is as far as like what it's like being a woman, um, in leadership, leadership positions in nursing, you know, I think 
the last, I've worked in three hospitals and all three of those hospitals, you know, there's a lot of women in leadership, which I think is really great. And I think that's just because of the field in general, you know, nursing is predominantly, um, still to this day, predominantly, you know, female driven. Um, I think like in my unit, I have, you know, there's like 40 employees and I think maybe five of those are men. Um, so, you know, it's still predominantly female driven and, um, with that, that's going to be reflected into leadership and even higher up leadership, which I think is really helpful because I think women's brains, you know, tend to uh, work a little bit different as far as the way that we lead or our ability of how we lead. We, we haven't been constructed or, or socially taught to lead in a specific way like men have. So I think it's really a beautiful, great, great thing to kind of see that in this specific field. Now, with that said, does that mean that, you know, um, I think any type that any time that a female steps into a leadership position, um, I think that there's always going to be a backlash against that specific female. And that's something that I experienced as well when I took this position. And I think that's also just because we've been socially taught that other females are always my competition and I can't, um, you know, I can't see another woman, um, rise up or, you know, whatever, because it's a reflection of me not being good enough or something like that. Like it's, it's this weird mentality of like constant competitiveness, whatever the hell I'm trying to say, being in competition with one another without like realizing like we're all allies and we also, we all had the same opportunity, um, which is, you know, something that I think is, is really important. Like there, there of course was a backlash. I definitely had, you know, some resistance and it was, I think that would have occurred no matter who it was. It just is how females are sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, no, we've definitely been taught. Well, because, you know, resources are more scarce for us um, just in general. Like if, you know, if, if like, what is it, 4% of the Fortune 500 are run by women, then clearly leadership is more scarce. Um, and so when we see other women getting the opportunity to lead, that means that it's not like, oh, well, I could also lead. It's like, oh, well, she just took my spot. Yeah. yeah. But even individuals that had no desire to get oh, into yeah. this spot was still going to be, you're still going to get that backlash. Anytime I think, um, a female shows up in the world, like you bet your ass, you're just going to expect that you're going to have some type of criticism. Like somebody's going to be hating on you no matter what you do. And as long as you can accept that, that this is what happens when we start to, um, I'm going to use Tara Moore's phrase, when we start to play bigger in our life, um, that's what's going to happen is that we are going to, we're going to be open to criticism. That's what comes with playing bigger in our own lives, whether it would be stepping into a leadership position or stepping into who we are or speaking up period. Like anytime that you're starting to show up in this world as a female, you're going to have criticism and you're just going to have to learn how to accept that and realize that it's not a reflection of you, but it's a reflection of the other, uh, individual. And that's just how it is. Um, you know, and that, that's what's, um, helped facilitate me being able to be like, whatever. Um, that isn't to say that it wasn't hurtful because it was straight up bullying and cattiness. Um, but you know, it's what you deal with. Yeah, I guess so. It just, it really sucks that that's what we have to accept, (laughs) you know? It is. And I don't think that it's necessary to accept it. I mean, I've taken, you know, I think that's where we have to continue, especially being a a person that stepped into a leadership position to then, you know, 
um, address that appropriately as a leader, um, rather than just say, this is our constant, this is our norm, because this is what we're also used to. Um, I think a leader is somebody that challenges the status quo and um, wants us all to do better um, individually and collectively. Even Jennifer, who wasn't in a leadership position, experienced some of the bullying and cattiness while at her yoga teacher training. I will say that just as I mentioned with corporate America and how there's going to be people that you don't like, and that's just the reality of it. I realized that with this program, again, you know, there's people that I went head to head with just because I didn't agree with their coaching methodologies. Let's just say that. And it, it rubbed me the wrong way. And I'm, I'm not a person who is going to sit back and how do I say, I'm not a person who's going to sit back and not say anything, especially if I feel what they're saying is a, is a little bit hypocritical of what we're being taught, essentially. So that's what I learned is even in the realm of yoga, you know, where everything is supposed to be like, we're all one, we're a community. Uh, one shall not gossip about someone else or one shall, you know, always come with the best intentions and everything in moderation and, you know, letting go to your highest power, all that are the foundational, the foundations of yoga, which we've learned. Uh, but then there's things where I'm like, hold on. Um, we were just taught all this in training and how important it is for instructors to live by these limbs of yoga that we're learning. But I'm looking over there and I see you completely, and I hear you, gossiping about someone that quite frankly, quite frankly, I don't think is cool. So that was where I was like, you know what? I, I didn't agree. And again, I had to do mental gymnastics because I was thinking, man, I really wanted this to be a all around good soul searching journey. And even with yoga, there's aspects of the journey that I was like, no, that was not cool. So I guess even in the yoga process, I had to get real too, where not everyone is in it for the goodness of it. And some people are really just there for the job. The thing that these conversations has taught me, however, is that if we can rise above the desire to cut one another down and compete with one another for resources that we believe are scarce, then collectivizing will be possible. Without that awareness and desire to break through some of our socialized competitiveness, however, it becomes a lot harder. Here's why I do believe it's possible, though. When Carrie went back into freelance, she didn't just go it alone. She made an announcement on social media that she was joining a new kind of agency, and I was really interested to hear how they were making it work. I just joined a group called Spool Marketing, S-P-O-O-L, and the woman who founded it is uh, someone I went to college with. I didn't know her in college, but we have been in touch through various friends, and she's she hustles like the way that 
I look at on the internet, I'm like, where do you find, like she has Beyonce energy. I don't know how I'm look, I'm sure that behind the scenes, like her kitchen is a mess or whatever it is, but it looks amazing and she gets things done. She just gets things done. So she had put out a call about potentially starting a group that kind of breaks the agency model apart and, and posits, um, she's focused in PR. So she's, she's positing, why can't we take all of our skills individually? We're all working independently, freelancing, consulting. We may have small clients. We may have big clients. And if we want to offer them more, well, let's all get together and, oh, you can offer this skill. Well, I'm going to bring you into the fold on this project. And it's, and it's a way to network and to grow our individual work by coming together. And we don't have to do it in the same office building. We don't have to do it with a giant agency overhead. So for each client that comes through, the team is then able to offer specifically exactly what they need and none of what they don't need. So something that came across in the ad agency world is that when you're pitching a client and you're trying to give them a quote of value for what you're going to bring to the table, there's a lot of stuff in there. And then when it came down to the creative work, I felt like my budget was so small because we had paid out for all these other people to be involved. And that's the way the agency world works. And that is what it is. But with Spool, because we're kind of doing away with that, we're able to just give people a little bit more value. There's fewer middlemen. And in fact, currently there are no men at all. Um, we happen to be about a dozen so far um, uh, women who all kick ass and take names. And that's also a really exciting place to be because I think because of where we all are in our careers, everyone is an expert in what they do. They're not so far. My experience with them has been no one is competing. No one is showing off at the same time. Support is so easy to give. And I think it's because there's none of that competition. I, I often found in a corporate environment, the more support you gave, there was a, there's a larger chance that you were seen as a support player and not an expert in your own right. Oh, she's really good backfill, you know, or if I offer to edit something, cause I come from a writing editing background, I'm doing that because I want to support the project, not because that's all I'm good for. And with this group, it really seems that we value each skill everyone brings to the table. And there's not that pigeonholing of, oh, you are only good for this one thing. That is a support to me and my more important other things. So, so far, that's been really interesting. And I'm, I'm excited to see how it grows. And I'm curious to see where it goes from here and, and how we develop relationships with clients and how different that can possibly be from a traditional agency model. I was and am especially excited for Carrie to find this collective and flexible place from which to grow her expertise and to support others because she let me know while we were recording that she was pregnant. 
She's now the mother of two beautiful twins and not having to sacrifice her maternity or time with her growing children in order to support a large company or her co-workers must have taken some of the pressure off during this time in her life, even while the precarity of not having a salary might still have made things difficult. While Carrie is now engaging in the unpaid work of raising children, Sarah is reflecting on the difficulty that many in her profession still face, despite the amount of hard work they do to help their patients. I think that, you know, within nursing as a whole, um, and I don't think that it's even different. I mean, it may be with women and men, but there's pretty much a standard of how much you get paid based on experience. Um, but, you know, we don't get paid enough, period, as nurses for how much we do, especially bedside nurses, um, with all the stuff that we endure. And, you know, I've worked in the ICU, the intensive care unit, for this is my 10th year now. Um, and, you know, we... It, this is, and people are going to probably not like this, but uh, I get the pay the same amount as any other nurse. And I don't think that's appropriate because I literally am saving people's life. I'm literally keeping people alive on a regular basis um, or helping them die with dignity. Um, you know, if they decide to, you know, uh, transition to comfort care, you know, a comfort care situation. So, um, you know, as far as is that, yeah, I don't think that nursing as a whole, I don't think that we get paid as much as what we should. Um, I think we all deserve a little bit more because we have, you know, um, there's a lot of risk involved with our profession, um, not only exposure to um, all sorts of bodily fluids, but, you know, nurses have, especially in um, specific areas, we move our patients. So we we are beating our bodies up. It's long hours. Um, it's laborious in a way that I don't think anybody can understand unless you're actually in, in the field, um, in the sense that it is a, a fatigue that is unlike any other fatigue that I've experienced because your mind is on, your emotions are on, your sociability is on because you have family and doctors and other coworkers you have to deal with, and it's physically intensive. So, um, you know, it, it's a lot. Nursing is a lot. Now, with that, with that being said, you know, kind of speaking to the idea of, of helping, um, and feeling like you are not rewarded. I think that that is, I can definitely see that as a challenge in some, uh, specific scenarios, but, you know, um, I try to do my best to help all of my patients. And I feel like I do continue to care for them. Like when I care for my patients, I don't feel like, oh, I'm just doing this for, um, you know, capitalism because I actually have, um, the ability to, to actually help somebody, whether they're in pain or whether they need emotional support or whether them is helping them with their recovery. I mean, I, I really am being an active participant in helping an individual. So I don't feel like it's, you know, I'm working, um, specifically in that sense, but it definitely is like, we are ran hard sometimes as nurses. Um, I, there's a, there's a shortage, a global, um, or I'm sorry, rather, a shortage nation nationwide, um, wide as far as nurses. So, you know, it, it comes with the territory, but I think that that's where you have to just look within your own self and ask yourself those questions and be real with yourself. Um, and it was still worth it for me personally. I mean, I still get a lot of fulfillment out of the, the job that I do. Which is amazing. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear that because I, I worry, <laughs> you know, like I worry about the, the allure of online health coaching, um, in a lot of ways, you know, and, and not just health coaching, but, but online business in general, or just, you know, the, the entrepreneurial mindset that we all have, you know, this push towards individualism 
is directly antithetical to creating a world where more people want to be nurses. Um, you know, there's a reason there's a shortage. Um, I don't know if it's directly tied to online business, but I think people are discouraged from going into professions where you work hard and don't get compensated as much as a CEO. Um, you know, teaching, I was a teacher and it was miserable. I loved my kids to death. Like I adored them. Um, and I, when I made the decision to stop teaching, it was like gut wrenching, but I was also working 90 hours a week and making, um, 35 a year, you know, mm, I had to, live, yeah. I had to live in, you know, my dad's extra room, um, in my hometown because I, uh, like I literally, my, my, I, my uh, salary didn't cover like rent in Florida where there's no like property taxes. You know what right. I mean? Like it was just one of those things where it was like, um, I, I didn't see a future for me, even though I loved what I did. Um, and it's really interesting. Actually, I was, uh, I was at a women's event, some women's empowerment event the other day. They had hired me to teach a burlesque dance. Um, and so I showed up a little bit early and they were doing infomercials in between each of the session, the sessions. And, um, and one of the women got up to do her little infomercial. And so she stands up to sell some MLM beauty thing. Um, and she talks about how, um, you know, she used to be an ICU nurse and she was exhausted and she didn't feel like she had enough to give to her family. And then she found multi-level marketing and um, she left and now she has more money than she made when she was a nurse and she has a company car and she's able to spend time with her family. And it's just like, of course, why wouldn't you leave if that's what's going to happen? <laughs> right. Um, right. I mean, but you know, with my situation, like I'm not married and I don't have kids and yes, like my three twelves, they're very long and I usually need a day of recovery. Uh, but I think that you have to have that awareness of like, you know, I, I, again, I come from a privileged position where I don't have kids. And when I come home, it's not like, oh my God, I have to fix dinner and I have to bathe my kids, which, you know, uh, again, this all goes back to me always asking like, where the fuck's your partner? Like he lives there too. But you know, that's not my, my MO to be able to say that to individuals. But, um, you know, it's again, uh, uh, women are put as like, you know, do it all. Um, even when you're working and you're exhausted and, you know, 13 hours later, even though there's somebody else in the house that could fix dinner, like it's on you, you know what I mean? It's on you to take care of all this, which is just a social issue, um, on top of all that, but that, because that's very real. I mean, that's some of the conversations that I have with some of my coworkers. I'm like, I don't know how I would be able to do it if I had kids. Um, I would be very tired and exhausted for sure. So it's very um, enticing to hear that person's story of like, oh, everything is just great. I have all this money and a car and all this freedom and I don't have to do anything and yada, yada. Hell yeah, like sign me up. I want to do that. For Carrie, that enticement is gone. She's experienced the reality of what it looks like to go freelance and build your own business. And now she's willing to make some sacrifices. I think that that's one of the the biggest things that's changed for me over the last year and a half is that when I first left the corporate world, I'm like, I'm never going to do nonsense work again. I'm, I reject bullshit. I won't do it. Now I'm only going to do cause-related projects. Hey, I still would love, I'm still moving in that direction. And the percentage of cause related work I'm doing is growing and growing and growing. But at the end of the day, I have a mortgage. I have a family. If a pharma job comes through and I'm not working, I'm probably going to take it. 
that said, I completely agree with, with your assessment that it's the way the work is done. And again, maybe this is just a rationalization, right? Because I could be out, I don't, I don't know, doing something more productive, but this is the world we live in. And I think it's a little idealistic, maybe overly idealistic to think that only our passion for a topic, only that can feed us. I think that sometimes there's some danger there. Like a lot of this, like follow your dream and do what you love is awesome. We, we should do that. I, I completely stand behind that. But sometimes you have to do things you don't love. And that's, that's just life. That's, I hear like the voice of, of my parents and grandparents coming through me in that. Like not everyone gets to do pure joy all the time. That's just not what this world is about. <laughs> Yeah. It just isn't. Yeah, and I mean, like, if you are doing the thing that you love all the time and it becomes your grind, you lose a little bit of the love for that thing, I would think. And sometimes it's nice to just, at least for me, for my personality, it's nice to just know my task and do my job without putting 125% of my heart and soul into it so that I can save that, so I can put that energy towards things that I truly care about I can still care about the quality of my work. I can still care about the relationships I have with the people on that project. I can still care about all of those things. It doesn't mean I'm phoning it in. I can still have a really positive experience even if I'm selling something that I wouldn't necessarily buy myself. Mm-hmm. And I think it also, doesn't it take some of the pressure off of the stuff that you're doing with yoga and with your podcast? Like, then it's not like, oh my God, if this doesn't work, I have to give this up. Now it's, I, yes. can, I can pay my bills and I can still do the thing I love, right? I think at the beginning of Yoga for the Revolution, I really thought, not that I would take over the world, because I think that's a little egotistical, but... I didn't know. I, the only people I knew who were podcasting had great numbers. You know, they were, they were impressive. They, my husband, for example, has been doing podcasting. He's been doing it honestly for like 15 years. So he was in on the ground floor and we go places and people recognize him. That's weird because he did a video show for a long time as well. And so that was kind of my, well, that's the ultimate, I'll be somewhere underneath that, but I didn't necessarily imagine like, oh yeah, no, it's, it's way underneath that. And that's okay for me because of what you just said, because I can put my heart and my love into a topic and put my work into the world without attachment to having that be the one thing that needs to provide me money. One of the things that I've talked about with a partner of mine is evaluating value for each project because as a freelancer you have to you have to do give quotes all the time you have to have a sliding well you don't have to but you will often have a sliding scale depending on who your client is I'm gonna charge a corporate client a higher price than I'm gonna charge a nonprofit I'm going to charge someone a lot more for something I don't really want to do than, than I am for something that I'm super passionate about and would probably volunteer for anyway. So we talk a lot about what value am I getting from this project? Is it financial? Is it educational? Is it relational? Am I you know, meeting people and, and 
having relationship benefits for it? Am I, you know, again, am I learning a new skill? Am I learning how to build this part of a website? Am I learning something about a particular topic or am I just getting exposed to something I'm passionate about? All of those things have value. And I feel like when I was in the corporate environment, the only value was money or an award. If you got an award, that was fine also. But everything, but also that is money, right? Because if you get more awards, your agency will get paid more and blah, blah, blah. I think that the only value being money was a really challenging model for me because I didn't care enough about it. I just didn't care enough about the money. I'm going to get, especially working full time, I'm going to get paid whether we solidify the ideal Facebook strategy for this liquor client or not. I mean, maybe not forever. Maybe if I'm really bad at it, I won't get paid at all anymore and they'll tell me to go home. But on a day-to-day basis for your motivation to go into it every day, what I like about where I am now is that I can, for every phone call I take, for every project I take on, for every morning I may wake up early or night I go to sleep, I know, because I've assessed it already for myself, what the value is in what I'm doing. And that's all I need to remind myself. If I'm on a phone call and it's a total drag and I disagree with the client and I'm frustrating, I'm frustrated, I may also be frustrating, um, I just remember why, okay, what's my motivation for doing this? And if it's, you care about this subject, great, it's a good reminder. If it's, these people care about what they're doing and you want to support them, great, that's a great reminder. If it's, you don't care at all, but they're paying you a bunch of money, that's also a good reminder. Jennifer had a similar realization after coming out of yoga teacher training. While she's continuing to pursue her creative passions, she signed up for a writing class at Stanford that she would be starting just after we spoke. She also realized that returning to a corporate career wouldn't just be an option. For her, where she was in her life, it was a good choice. So I am in the process of interviewing right now, actually, and I'm going to leave that at that um, because I do realize that it's, it's important for me to be real and be responsible about my finances and what I need to do to take care of my financial obligations. Um, And that doesn't mean that I can't pursue creative outlets outside of my daytime job. Now what I'm realizing is that in addition to having a full-time job, which by the way, can still be new for me, right? It can still be an aspect where I'm growing and learning and continuing to challenge myself. Um, That I'm looking forward to. But outside of my full-time job, I still want to pursue creative outlets. Um, Hence why I'm enrolled in the writing course. And I don't know, maybe I'll take up painting a couple months from now, once the writing is, I don't, I'm just open at this point. I'm like, you know what? I want to live a creative life um, and I want to be an adult about it. Um, Meaning, meaning there's nothing wrong with being, and I actually, I actually prefer to be childlike uh, in my creative uh, 
just my creative curiosity, but I don't want to be childish. So that's why I'm like, okay, Jennifer, let's get real. Let's start interviewing. Let's get out there and just, I don't know, just have more of a foundation to work off of. Being childlike but not childish is what's helping Jennifer make it through on days when she's reminded why she left in the first place. What I'm realizing is that what I got a taste of is going to be everywhere, meaning I need to learn mental gymnastics if I want to be able to find some sort of happiness and still maintain a job. So what I realize is, you know what, even through this interview process, I will tell you, there are times when I am being reminded of what has happened, meaning I'm being triggered in the same way. And I will leave the phone call feeling just icky and upset and mad. And I'm thinking, huh, these are the same feelings that I felt previously. And people that have interacted with previously that I didn't necessarily get along with, they're always going to exist. Like people that you can't like everyone that you work with is what I'm, I'm coming to. Like That's just the reality. You can't like everyone you work with. There's going to be people that you are going to disagree with. However, I'm also seeing that there are so many good people out there as well. Like really just people who want, are trying to provide for their families, right? Like they're just really trying to do what is best for them to live a comfortable life. And outside of work, they're, they're great. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to become more self-aware about how I'm reacting to certain situations and not letting my emotions get the best of me. Um, And really just being proud of myself for having this time off. Like I'm not like even just having this time off, I'm thinking, wow, once I start working, I'm not going to have the same luxury of time that I have currently. So appreciate it, right? Like eat it up and and just enjoy it and realize that once you start working, things are going to be different and different is okay. Different is okay. And Jennifer got the job. But if returning to corporate work isn't the right option for you right now, that's okay too. But Sarah has advice for anyone who is still considering entering the crowded and precarious field of coaching. If you're thinking about going into health coaching, you know, if that's what you think, I, I first I ask you, what is the, what's the story attached to it, right? Like, just like there's a story attached to losing weight, what's the story attached to becoming a health coach? Like, be real with yourself. Like, what is the actual story? Because my story was a complete illusion. Um, but regardless, if that's something that you want to try, um, go for it, I guess, you know, nothing is ever permanent in our lives. Just know that like, it's really difficult. Um, and you're going to have challenges, but you know, we all have to be willing to, um, 
do what we think is going to be best for us in that given moment. And I think that I try to give people the benefit of the doubt and saying that we all try to do our best with the resources that we have. Um, so if that's something that you really want to do, I'm not going to discourage you from doing it. Um, just be aware of like why you want to do it and continue to be aware and check in with yourself to ask if you're really living within your own values and your belief system for yourself. Um, because I think that it's very easy to get wrapped up into it and to, um, kind of disappear into that whole entrepreneurial identity mindset, work, 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 productivity, capitalism, like all this stuff. So if that's, you know, just, just have a lot of self-awareness and reflection for yourself. If you're trying to leave and you're totally exhausted, um, you know, I had the, you know, luxury of having another job that I fell back on. And, um, you know, it wasn't difficult for me to leave because I, and that's why I kept nursing. That's why I kept one foot in, in the door there. That's why I didn't shut that door. Uh, because you know, I was like, this is a risk, uh, with starting a business. But so it was really easy for me to leave, but I think that it really comes back to asking yourself, at least for me, like, what is it that I really, how do I want to feel in my life? Am I existing in my life? Um, and if you feel like, you know, like I said, you're living within your values and your beliefs and how you truly want to feel, then I think allow that answer to guide you with whichever way, uh, you want to choose, but also know, like I said, nothing is ever permanent and you can leave and it's okay to give up that part of your life. Um, it's totally okay for things to change. We're always changing and evolving. And I think that when we become stagnant, uh, I think that's really detrimental to our own self. And Carrie also realized that dropping out didn't necessarily have the impact that she thought it would. I mean, that's the thing. I think that the biggest thing for me to realize even before I left the corporate world was I thought dropping out, I felt dropping out was this radical act. And it, and it, and it is, I'm not saying it isn't, but it's also, there's a lot of us out here making our way in a million gazillion different ways. It's not just work in a corporate world or make soap for a living and sell it at markets, right? Like there's a huge, huge field of opportunity in between those two things. There's an opportunity to do what you love without being an internet celebrity about it. Um, I really thought when I first started, oh, I'm gonna have to be Instagram famous in order to make my life work. And that is just so not true. It's just so not true. And that's, that's a great gift for me because I don't like that. I'm not good at it and I'm not going to be an Instagram celebrity. So cool. Glad I don't need to do that because I would kind of be screwed if I did. So, you know, just knowing for, for whoever is listening to know that the options are about as limitless as your imagination, then fill in those gaps with experience and life. And then you'll figure out what way works. And it may not look like your imagination paints it, right? I mean, again, I thought I was going to go only do cause work and then somehow still have like money to pay the mortgage and do my side projects and all this stuff, right? I need to adjust along the way to say, oh, well, I'm still going to need to be on a Slack channel about 
some auto parts project I'm working on, right? Like <laughs> that is still the reality, but that's a choice. Like all of that is a choice that I get to make. And it feels really different than the choices I had earlier. Whether you're dropping out or dropping in or somewhere in between, I just want to honor your journey. It's not easy living in this precarious world. It's not easy to work a job that isn't aligned with your passions, and it's not easy to turn your passion into a job. I just want to share Jennifer's parting thoughts from her final audio diary as a way to honor you wherever you are. Because facing down the future, regardless of the path you choose, takes courage. So that's what I wanted to end with is just this courage of trying something new. So instead of looking at our failures and our imperfections, let's look at this with another lens and say, hey, trying something new takes a lot of guts. And I wrote an entire blog post about this as well just because it was so heavy. But yeah, just the courage to stand up and do something new. I'm really proud of us for that. And that is all I have to record for this week. I will see you next week. I won't see you next week. As you listen to this, I'll be entering the end of my first semester of my PhD program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I'm hard at work at bringing you a season two. Please continue to subscribe to the Patreon, patreon.com slash bodybrandpod, and share this podcast with your friends, family members, and that one acquaintance from high school who really, really, really wants you to buy protein powder from her through your Facebook messages. And if you've got a story to share, positive or negative, about your experience as a wellness entrepreneur, please record a voice memo or shoot me an email at yourbodyyourbrand at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at bodybrandpod. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. See you in season two.